coming this fall to Crime Time TV. He's Officer Good Cop. I'm a bad cop. He's Officer Bad Cop. I'm a cop. They aren't afraid to go after the worst in society. Sir, 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 sir. Sorry, ma'am. They also aren't afraid to go after the worst in themselves. You can't shoot that many innocent kids. Watch me. And they aren't afraid to get real. So I killed all the witnesses and they never caught me. Well, you're under arrest. <laughs> That's not in the script. No, you're under arrest. What? What are you talking about? You're an actor. No, you're an actor. I'm a cop. I said it at the beginning. This was a sting? Yeah. Buzz, buzz. Are you sending me to actor prison? No, we're sending you to prison. Is that an acting school? No, and it's not Screen Actors Guild approved either. My dental! Good work, boys. Case closed and show canceled. Nothing to see here, folks. Unless you want to watch us fill out paperwork. Hello, my Coney Island baby! <laughs> welcome to the WB! Other coast, other coast, quick! Oh, sorry. Hey, welcome to Surf Talk with <laughs> your boy SpongeBob Greg Pants and... <laughs> Uh, marijuana made of <laughs> medicine. Oh, God. Marijuana medicine. Don't forget to take your marijuana. <laughs> now, son, have you packed your marijuana for school today? Uh, you're not feeling good. You better smoke two reefers. <laughs> welcome back yet again. We're glad you're here. Welcome. Pull up a chair. Have a pint. Uh, pint and a pie. A pint and a pie, if you will. So this is episode 18 or so. Uh, LA Makely, the podcast. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. Most cordial we've ever been to each other. Oh, boy. Is I feel somebody, like uh, mm-hmm, rose petals in the ground are, are deserved. Is our anniversary coming up or something? Have you cheated on me? Is that why you're being so nice? I've been on another podcast. You got to know. I was thinking of this podcast the entire time. <laughs> so on this episode, we're going to be talking about the uh, worst of the worst. Some of the bad years of the L.A. Police Department. We're going to talk about bad cops who have passed through the hallowed halls of the LAPD. And we sort of skipped over the early years, kind of when it was the worst. But I think boy, that's another episode. We, yeah, listen, we got a lot to cover. There, there, we skipped over that because there were no good cops back exactly, then. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. someone make a case. Uh, <laughs> N.W.A. We're both picking a bad cop, then we're both going to pick a good cop and smear their good name through the mud. Yeah. I've got my eyes on that Chief Beck. Is that our chief? Uh, I thought our chief was like Chewbacca or something. It's Chewbacca. No, that's our sheriff. Sheriff Chewbacca. Oh my God, I shot the sheriff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Han shot first, so I didn't shoot his deputy Greedo. All right, so I'm going to start us out for chronological sake. For the sake of chronology, let me go first for once. I'm always first. You are always first. Like Han shooting. The Rampart Corruption Scandal. Oh, no. A dark mark on the LAPD's otherwise spotless history. <laughs> spotless because they bleached over it. <laughs> it's just all spot. There's no, <laughs> you can't tell anymore. Is the zebra white with black stripes? That wasn't a racial comment. Shut up. I felt but, very uncomfortable for I a minute. I felt uncomfortable also. I should have talked about like a lion or something. They're from Africa. <gasps> this whole 
episode, not this episode, but this the Rampart Corruption episode, it'll go down as the worst scandal in LAPD history. Mm-hmm. This story has a lot of ties in people's minds with the movie Training Day. I've never seen that. What's it about? It's about the Rampart Corruption scandal. It's you exactly just, the same thing. You just said that. Okay. It's a documentary. <laughs> in reality, Training Day was written years before this story came to light. Not really. It actually started being made a little after the peak of the whole thing, so parts of the movie were probably rewritten to try to reflect it a little better. Denzel Washington made himself look more like the central figure of this scandal for the filming, and according to IMDb... Oh boy, the most credible source I could think of on the internet. (laughs) His character's license plate number, ORP967, is a reference to the man at the center of this real-life story, Officer Rafael Perez, born 1967. Ah, clever. Actually born in the year 967. (laughs) As a side note, James Elroy apparently called Training Day a complete waste of time. (laughs) Fortunately for Elroy, the true story of what happened is not as clear-cut as the movie and is much more confusing if you can believe that to start if you would let me let's set the stage of what the city was like at the time gangs is that how it's pronounced gangs yeah a gangster is a member of a gang correct yeah they're one unit of a gang (laughs) a gangster of gang members makes a gang (laughs) yeah exactly so they've been around in la forever but in the late 70s 1970s greg when the comedy what did I say? Comedy? You said disco, and my mind started doing the funk. <laughs> when the economy was not so good, things were starting to get noticeably bad. Most of the serious gangs up to this point had been Latino, mostly Mexican. But around this time, there was a big influx of immigrants from Central and South America, where in a lot of places you couldn't trust the police. So some people decided to take matters into their own hands, and a lot of new Latino gangs started popping up. In addition, the black gangs were starting to emerge as a serious force of crime at the same time. In 1979, there were 2,088 major crimes in the city. By 1981, there were 5,158. Oh my God. <laughs> to try to keep up the LAPD with the help of a federal grant. In 1977, they formed a special unit based out of the Hollenbeck Station, Mm -hmm. made up of 44 officers that would focus exclusively on areas where gang activity was high. This unit was called Total Resources Against Street Hoodlums, a.k.a. Trash. (laughs) By 1979, the city took over funding this unit, and they changed the word total to community because it was so offensive, and it was now called Crash. Crash. And it's also confusing because there's Training Day, which is kind of not really about this. And then there's the movie Rampart, which is not really about this. And then there's two movies called Crash, which are kind of dealing with the same thing, but have nothing to do with it. Well, one of them is kind of dealing yeah, with the same thing. Yeah, the other, other one's... Uh, ooh, the other one's hot. Oh, boy, I'm getting all spicy. <laughs> yeah, I want to go drive my car. car into a wall. <laughs> the county sheriff's department formed a similar task force in 1978 called Operation Safe Streets that has been called by many as being way more effective than Crash. So where the OSS had a strategy of target gang suppression where they would focus only on the gangs causing the most trouble. Crash was using total gang suppression which meant they were focusing on all gangs at all times. They were less focused, not quite as effective, and not quite as gentle either. Crash officers were assigned to a gang and it was their job to find out everything about that gang. So their history, who their enemies were, who was in the gang, what their nicknames were, who they were dating, where their mom lived, whether Greg was affiliated. They would know everyone in that gang intimately, but 
they wouldn't just spy on them from afar as Greg does. They I want to know what they're doing. They, What's that handball game? I want to play. They would actually interact with them daily. It wasn't always the sort of relationship that you would think. Mm-hmm. Some of the relationships were strangely pleasant. I've heard such thing. I've heard that they come and introduce themselves and yeah. it's kind of on, on friendly terms until something goes wrong. Yeah. But they kind of stopped it. From what I hear, we'll stop in when nothing's gone wrong, just checking up on them and just, yeah, yeah it's they like were, a formal introduction between enemies. Oh, Mr. Comp lover here. Oink, oink. I guess someone's having a luau. I'm neutral. <laughs> yeah, they would talk about their families and their loved ones. Part of this was just out of human kindness, but part of it was also that some of the gang members wanted to have just as much detailed information about the officers as they had on them. A lot of these relationships, they could go sour in an instant. So mm-hmm. like a, a guy you were talking to one day could be having a bad day the next and turn around, you call his name and he turns around and shoots at you. The officers joining Crash were some of the best in the LAPD, Greg. It appealed to many because in Crash, you weren't stuck at a desk and you didn't have to deal with like trivial day-to-day cop stuff like car crashes, domestic abuse, you know, the usual. Supposedly Sunday is uh, domestic abuse day. I've heard a cop say that before. Is that official? Is, is that like a federal holiday? Well, I, when I was working at a, as a cashier across the street from a police station, it was Sunday and I said, how's your Sunday going, officer? It's like Sunday's the worst day because, <laughs> because it's domestic, because like Saturday nights the guys are drinking and they beat their wives they go to sunday they go to church the next day feel guilty and (laughs) listen god i'm sorry i won't apologize to her but i'm sorry (laughs) the crash officers they had to be tough to not be afraid of gangsters and as a result in order to fight violent gangsters some of these cops had to be just as violent and because of that crash was sometimes criticized as being a gang itself the specific unit that we're going to be talking about is the rampart crash unit oh boy every area of the city has a name given to it by the la APD. Rampart is the area bordered by Sunset on the north, mm-hmm. Normandy on the west, the 110 on the east, and the 10 on the south. Where do you live? What division covers me? Yeah. I don't know if it's northeast. You know, I don't know. I live in Echo Park. I don't know who covers me. I think it's northeast. I live really, I, I live really close to the police academy. I think the cadets... <laughs> The the cadet, yeah, you're big. You're the like test ground. <laughs> so the rampart covers 7.9 square miles and is made up of Angelino Heights, Echo Park, not your part of Echo Park. Oh yeah, the bad side by the lake. <laughs> yeah, Filipino Town, Koreatown, Lafayette Park, MacArthur Park, Pico Union, mm-hmm. Temple Beaudry, Virgil Village, and Westlake. That's what's covered in there. Some scary areas there. What's scary about MacArthur Park? What's scary about Lafayette Park? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, let's go there right now. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. No, me either. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to flash some signs. I don't care what's going to happen. I'm scared. At the time. (laughs) Let's both shave our heads. Hey, guys. We're not afraid of you. How about some of that handball? I know it's really late. You keep bringing up handball. Do they really play handball a lot? When I was a kid, I used to see a lot of handball. With those really small rubber balls. Yeah, small ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to play baseball with them because if you hit them, they go really far and you think that you're uh, Ken Griffey Jr., I hate, to, I hate to break it to you, Sonny. You're playing stickball. <gasps> I played stickball? Really? <laughs> you used the stick, didn't you? <laughs> so at the time of the scandal, the late 90s, it yeah. was the most densely populated area west of the Mississippi with 36... 30... 30... I turned too much into Mark Twain... <laughs> With 36,000 people per square mile and even more living undocumented. Also at the time, there were over 60 active gangs in Rampart with around 8,008... I'm still Mark Twain. 8,000 members. That's a lot of stickball, Greg. So because of that, Rampart led LA in murder, drug sales, and violent crime. 
Isn't that great? Maybe we had to be a leader of something. You can't have one without the other two. To fight all this, the Rampart crash unit had around a dozen officers on average. 20, it would fluctuate. 20 was the highest number they would have during the summer when gang activity was the highest. So having to deal with these numbers, the Rampart crash unit had developed a sort of brotherhood mentality to keep themselves strong against what they were facing. It was referred to as the Rampart way. Oh, I don't appreciate your tone. It's in quotations, Greg. Oh, oh you are. You you're just quoting the tone they had their own logo that officers would put on their clothing or even get tattooed onto themselves onto their skin greg like a gang no it's not like that you see they're on the city payroll they're not a gang (laughs) the city paid for their tattoos (laughs) their logo was called the aces and eights and it showed a skull wearing a cowboy hat (laughs) (laughs) hold (laughs) it scary are you scared yet how hillbilly there's more the cow the skull there were four playing cards Mm -hmm. sort of around the uh where the neck would be there were four playing cards two aces and two eights this is known as the dead man's hand because it's the poker hand that wild bill hickok was holding when he was killed so it was partly because of this that they were referred to as the cowboy cops Ah. gangsters feared this logo they also had a reward system where if you shot a gangster in the line of duty you got a special plaque oh so if the guy you shot died the plaque had a card with a black number two on it if it lived, it was a red number two. There were also shell casings on them for how many times you shot the person. Is this a video game they played? Yeah, it's called We're Cops and We're Discriminatory. <laughs> 64. My mom will not buy that for me. It's, it's a, not that great. It's, it's not M-A. as good as the first one. <laughs> Which was a, a paddy wagon and a baton. Rampart Crash became more and more of an autonomous entity from the rest of the LAPD. While other crash officers had to wear full uniform, Rampart Crash insisted on wearing street clothes. Oh boy. In 1995, the Rampart Police Station was getting too crowded, so Rampart Crash got their own headquarters at 3rd and Union, and they became even more their own separate Whoa. organization. Their motto written above the door was, we intimidate those who intimidate others. But we also intimidate those two. We intimidate all. Oh, exactly. <laughs> when you're leaving on the other side of the bar. <laughs> Don't forget to intimidate. <laughs> now, when all LAPD officers join the force, they get what's called a 999 key that gives them access to all the police stations in the city. When Rampart Crash got their building, they changed the locks on the parking area oh to my. only accept a special 888 key that God. only Rampart Crash officers had. The center of the scandal, like I said, was a man named Rafael Perez. He was born in Puerto Rico, 1967. <gasps> Just like the license plate. Just like Denzel's license plate. Oh, I love that movie. Uh, Raining Day? What was it? <laughs> yeah, Rain Man Day. Rain Man Day. <laughs> but he came to the U.S. at a young age, first to New Jersey, then to Philadelphia, where he would regularly witness drug deals on the street and dream of being able to stop them. Just like his LAPD heroes on the hit show, Adam 12. <laughs> in 1985, Perez graduated high school, joined the Marines after his service he eventually joined the LAPD at age 21 in June of 1989 he served his rookie year doing the regular cop sort of stuff but he soon joined up with the West Side Narcotics Bureau where he was taken under the wing of a man named David Mack remember all these names you might want to have a notepad all right I'm gonna start I'm gonna write down David Mack who else should I write down uh Denzel Washington was there Wild Bill Hickok was there and Ethan Hawk <gasps> Wild Bill Ethan Hickok oh <gasps> To the mortuary. <laughs> he was a vampire. 
Pay attention to all these names because it's all okay. they're all going to be coming back. I wrote down David Mack. David Mack. Who's that? I'll tell you who's that. He was a former track and field star who almost married Florence Joyner, who was an Olympic gold medalist, a track and field star also. Mack was the best in the narcotics unit and had very sharp street smarts, which amazed Perez. So he started idolizing and copying Mack in every way. At one point, their friendship was solidified when supposedly Mack saved Perez's life in a sting operation that went bad. Someone like drew a gun. I don't know how... Look, I don't know what happens on the street. I'm not a- what do I look like, a dragnet to you? <laughs> Perez himself, who went by Ray on the force, was very good at the job as well. He spoke Spanish, which was very helpful. So in 1995, Mac used his connections in the force to get Perez sponsored into Rampart Crash because he had to be sponsored in by an old partner of Mac's named Sammy Martin. That's another name you're going to want to remember. Sammy Martin. This is great. If you have little kids that are trying to learn how to spell and read, listen to this. You should. Yeah. This will really teach you. It'll teach some great hand-eye coordination. What cops to be afraid of? Anyone named Mac. Martin. Martin. Washington. Hawk. Mac is also the godfather to Martin's son. I always put godfather. Write down godfather, everybody. So all the pieces are now on the board. So I'm going to tell you three separate incidents that happened as they were officially reported. Okay. Incident one, March 18th, 1997, Ventura Boulevard, Studio City. Fade in. Adam 12. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. We've got police brutality. (laughs) Here's a new name for you. Officer Frank Liga was working undercover as a member of the Aryan Brotherhood and was stopped at a light. What? (laughs) You heard me. The AB? The the AB Society. He was stopped at a light when an SUV playing very loud hip-hop music Mm. pulled up next to him. The guy driving it kept staring at him, so Liga asked him if there was a problem, and the guy in the SUV went on to threaten him and told him he would put a cap inside of his ass. (laughs) Like a baseball camp? Liga yelled back at him, and they both agreed to pull over and have it out. So they both pulled over, but when the guy in the SUV got out, Liga then pulled away back into traffic laughing at the guy. The guy in the SUV does not like that. He started following Liga through the traffic until he finally pulled up next to him again, pulled out a gun on him. Liga managed to duck down, fire back, and he killed the guy. He killed the guy in the SUV? He killed the guy in the SUV. SVU. Then they should solve the crime. <laughs> As it turns out, the guy in the SUV was a man named, here's a new name, Kevin Gaines, who is an off-duty cop. Oh, no. As it turns out, Gaines had a history of road rage and of threatening drivers before. Since Lego was white and Gaines was black, the incident became seen as a racial thing, yeah. which the LAPD took very seriously since they were recovering from Rodney King and the whole OJ thing okay. that just happened. What it really was, though, was just two cops acting like macho idiots. Yeah. Gaines's family sued the city for $25 million and had a one Johnny Cochran as their uh, lawyer. Even though Lego was right uh, by all accounts yeah. Liga was right in doing this the city settled for $250,000 to give to Gaines' you, family just to not make it a big thing you always side with the Aryan Brotherhood what can I do how am I gonna get out of it so they Liga won the case no, no, the, won the, case. the the city paid off. Correct. Come on. What I was. You, I was. I what was do you remember of the Aryan Brotherhood? <laughs> Come on. The city paid off the Gaines family two hundred fifty thousand dollars just because they don't want another controversy okay. like the whole uh, Rodney King thing. The second incident. Okay. November 6, nineteen ninety seven. A Bank of America is robbed on Jefferson Boulevard across from USC. The robbers were led to the vault by the assistant manager. Here's a name. 
Erilyn Romero, and they made off with $722,000. That's the second incident. Pretty clear cut, I'd say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All wrapped up, buddy. With a bow. I put Errol Flynn. The third incident involves Perez himself. Okay. In 1996, Perez and the crash officer he had sponsored in himself, here's a new name, Nino Durden. He's from the man at Bleak Blork. <laughs> they were staking out gang activity from an apartment Rampart Crash rented out just for this purpose to sort of stake things out. Yeah. When a guy named, I, uh, I don't hear on. scratching on paper, Javier Francisco Ovando burst in with the intention of assassinating the two cops, but Perez and Durden managed to get the drop on him, if you will, yes. before he could. He was shot in the neck and the chest. His body was mostly paralyzed from for obviously for the rest of his life that's not funny it turned out Ovando it turned out Ovando was in the 18th street gang and did not speak much English but denied that he had tried to kill the two officers the court didn't believe him he was sentenced to 23 years in prison now is when the official versions of the stories start to fall apart let's revisit them shall we go back to one let's go back to the first incident you're correct you are correct correct I know how numbers work the road rage one in case you've forgotten like I said Gaines the off-duty officer officer who got killed had a history of threatening to cap motorists. He also had a history of beating his wife, probably on Sunday, and fighting with other cops. He one time made a fake 911 call for cops to show up at a house just so he could pick a fight with them and then sue them. Wow. Yeah. This is when it starts getting really weird. The house he told them to show up at, the house of Sharitha Knight, Uh Snoop Dogg's manager slash Suge Knight's ex-wife. Whoa. Suge Knight, in case you didn't know, is a co-founder of Death Row Records, but we all know that, am I right? (laughs) As it turns out, Gaines was living in the mansion with Sharitha and living high with her money. What's so strange about that? A lot. Suge Knight was in prison at the time. Oh, boy. And also a known gangster. He was a member of the Bloods. Turns out, so was Gaines. He was a member of the Bloods. The off-duty cop. The off-duty cop was also a Blood. He was seen regularly at Monty's Steakhouse in Westwood, which was at 1100 Glendon Avenue, which was a favorite death row hangout. And further investigation showed that Gaines was actually moving drugs and money for Suge while he was in prison. So Rampart Crash and the LAPD in general, it's not as uncommon as you think. There were a lot of ties to death row records. A lot of officers would work security for them when they were off duty to earn extra money. Wow. It was all incredibly suspicious, but the LAPD chose not to investigate it further after the road rage incident because Gaines was now dead, so the case is closed. Why should we look deeper into it? Now, let's go on to the second incident. The bank robbery. The bank robbery. Bank of America robbery. Bank, bank. Bank of America. (laughs) Getting robbed by USC. (laughs) $722,000 stolen with assistant manager... Errol Flynn, mm-hmm. Errol and Romero mm-hmm. on duty. Turns out Romero had ordered an unusually large amount of money to be brought to the bank that had just arrived 10 minutes before the robbery took place. Oh, weird. Also turns out she had a boyfriend. That's nice. Good for her. Good for her. She, you know, she found somebody. know what his name was? What was it? David Mack. Oh, really? Perez's old partner, the former track and field star turned super narc that Perez (laughs) idolized. Super (laughs) narc. Mac also had a wife and kids away from his assistant manager girlfriend and had a love of going to clubs and gambling, which got him into a lot of credit card debt and he was in need of quick cash. Two days after the robbery, Mac, this isn't suspicious, took a lavish trip to Las Vegas. Okay. You know who he went with? His old friend, Sammy Martin, the guy who sponsored Perez into Crash. And who else? 
Rafael Perez. Wow. When Matt got back, he pulled uh, Menendez Brothers. He continued to spend lavishly. He bought a bunch of brand new leather furniture. Oh, tacky. I'm sure he got some watches. <laughs> and watched a James Bond film, why not? <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, his girlfriend Romero was a prime suspect in the case, and after a month of police pressure, she finally confessed oh, and she no. ratted out Mac. Further investigation of Mac showed he was a member of the Bloods as well, <laughs> and he was a friend of Gaines, and he was working for Suge Knight also. Mac is also believed to have been directly involved in the shooting of Notorious B.I.G. It may have been his car that Biggie was shot from, but none of this has been able to be proven. Mm. Suge Knight was that generation's Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes had everyone assassinated. <laughs> Howard Hughes killed Tupac. Or was it Howard Hawks? I always get them confused. I think it was Howard Hughes. I think you're thinking of Ethan Hawks. Are they related? Yeah. yeah. So on March 17th, 1999, Mac was sentenced to 14 years in prison for the robbery. Mm-hmm. He refused to name any other names, and while in prison he slowly started wearing only red things and fully embraced the blood lifestyle and renounced his past with the LAPD he was later shanked when his fellow inmates his fellow inmates saw him on TV that he had been associated with Rafael Perez who they all had grudges against the stolen money has never been recovered now two of these good friends have had their ugly secrets exposed and have been punished for them what about the third friend of theirs Rafael Perez he seemed to be skating by Scott free and then he screwed up. March 27th, 1998, six pounds of cocaine are checked out from the evidence lockup and then go missing. They were checked out under the name of Joel Perez, who was a real member of the LAPD, but his signature was wrong. Luckily, one of the clerks in the evidence lockup remembered the face of the man who had checked it out because he had been so memorably rude to her. (laughs) That man was another Perez, Rafael Perez. Oh, boy. That May, a secret Rampart Corruption Task Force was formed to investigate what was really going on at Rampart Crash, in particular, what Rafael Perez was doing. At first glance, it was obvious that Perez was living way too large to be able to afford on a cop's salary. Further investigating of the evidence lockup found that there were other unexplained cocaine disappearances. The February before the six pounds went missing, another two pounds had gone missing. Two pounds that had been brought in initially by Officer Liga. The guy who shot Gaines, who was an old friend of Perez's, who Perez may or may not have held a grudge against Liga. This was enough for the cops to serve Perez with a search warrant on August 6, 1998. Inside of his house, they found a bunch of stolen police stuff, scanners, radios, badges, raid jackets, staplers, probably. (laughs) Also inside the house was a box labeled Crash, Secret, Confidential, (laughs) which was filled with about half a dozen fake but very realistic guns. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, that's really weird. Why? uh, Maybe he just... maybe. He's got a hobby. Maybe he's okay. a movie. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's finally following his dreams and making that... <laughs> he's making the movie Trading Day. And they changed his name to Anton Fuqua. <laughs> they then requested his phone records, which showed that he was sometimes making over 100 phone calls a day. The boy likes to talk. Yeah, he's lonely. That's the big deal. One name stuck out, Veronica Quesada. You might want to write that down also, who he had called just before and just after the coke was stolen. So the police visited Quesada, who was Perez's mistress and was also on that post-robbery trip to Las Vegas. Oh, and found in her house not just a ton of coke, but also a picture of Perez in what they call a 211 suit. 211 being the code for a bank robbery, yeah. as uh, listen yeah, to that yeah, episode. Yeah, 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 I know that now. And the suit being a nylon running suit, which was a typical outfit for a bank robber. Perez was also throwing out gang signs in the picture. Quezada tipped them off that Perez was selling the drugs through her and had stolen even more coke, and closer inspection showed that there were a total of 11 other instances where officers had switched 
switched out evidence cocaine and replaced it with Bisquick. <laughs> they went for the good stuff. <laughs> All of these instances seemingly were orchestrated by Perez. There had also been a lot of unexplained deposits into Perez's bank accounts. So finally, this was all too much. On August 25th, they officially arrested Perez. His first words when they came to get him, is this about the bank robbery? <laughs> No, but it is now. We're double arresting you. <laughs> he was put on trial for possessing coke for the purpose of selling grand theft and also forgery. But Perez was so charming and convincing in court that the jury got deadlocked at an eight to four vote for conviction. But oh, they couldn't come to an agreement. So the jury was declared hung and they hung them all. <laughs> and it ended in a mistrial in December 1998. His retrial was scheduled for September 1999. But Perez started thinking that he probably wouldn't get lucky twice. Mm-hmm. And the DA, who was a Mr. Gil Garcetti, the oh. father of our current mayor. Yeah. Garcetti was doing a lot of gang work at the time. He also oversaw the O.J. Simpson and the Menendez case. Uh. He was putting a lot of pressure, pressure on Pressure. Perez's wife who was a civilian LAPD employee who they figured knew everything that he had been up to. So they threatened to charge her with not cooperating with the police investigation. Perez wanted his wife and his daughter protected, so he decided to cut a deal. He wanted immunity for his wife and a reduced sentence for himself of five years and his own immunity from further prosecution. In return, he'd tell them exactly what was happening at Rampart Crash. Oh, boy. The DA agreed on September 8th and the floodgates were open. (laughs) Perez requested from jail all the Rampart Crash arrest reports in order to point out which ones were falsified. Yeah. He reviewed 1,509 cases and pointed out that 91 of them were falsified, 63 involving himself. His confession lasted for 50 hours <laughs> over the course of 35 sessions spread out over nine months and produced over 4,000 pages of testimony. Wow. Let's first get to what really happened with the third incident okay. that we were talking about. The Ovando thing where Perez and his partner paralyzed the guy and he got 23 years. Yeah. They had said that Ovando burst in intending to kill them. What really happened was Perez and his partner, Durden, had gone into their observation apartment and found Ovando was living in there. They handcuffed him and interrogated him as to why he was there. Ovando wasn't cooperating. I guess if it's with cops, you're not cooperating. Yeah, you're not cooperating. So they shot him in the chest and then in the neck and they planted a gun on him before calling an ambulance, hoping he was dead. Wow. When this was confessed, Ovando was immediately released from prison and went on to sue the city and won the biggest police misconduct settlement in LA history in 2000. He got $15 million. (laughs) Planting guns, as Perez confessed, was not an unusual thing in Rampart Crash. He claimed that every officer in that unit had an extra gun to plant on a gangster if needed at all times. They were known as laydowns or throwdown guns and they're planted to justify the violence that the officers had used against them. They usually had at least one bullet in the chamber because that was a harsher penalty. And many times they would file off the serial number because that's an automatic felony. Yeah. They would force gang members to supply them with these guns. Planting guns like this and lying about probable cause to justify their force was the most common thing being done here. Perez said that 90% of crash officers in all districts were falsifying information. (laughs) They were also planting evidence of other kinds on people that they wanted arrested. But in addition to shooting unarmed people and framing them, they would also beat gang members just to intimidate them. They would punch them, kick them, choke them, usually while they were handcuffed. Bones were broken. The worst instance of this involved a member of the 18th Street Gang named Ismael Jimenez. His name's not so important. Call me... uh... Call me Jimenez. He had previously been abused by Rampart crash officers Uh and had filed a complaint against it. So in retaliation, on February 26th, 
1998, he was handcuffed and brought into the Rampart Station <laughs> where he was beaten and choked so bad he started vomiting blood. Oh, they then no. released him into the wild and he made his way to the hospital where the doctors reported the abuse. He was then visited in the hospital oh, by, no. <laughs> by Rampart Stop. crash officers to intimidate him, but a couple of cops did end up getting fired over this, luckily. One time, Rampart crash officers went to a funeral of a gang member, searched all the cars that were there without any legitimate reason. Drugs were found and arrests were made. Wow. Uh, they one time crashed. You get it? No. Me neither. Why did I write it like that? They crashed. Oh, I get it now. A gang party. <laughs> and they made everyone there line up. Then they picked people at random down the line and made up charges against them. Oh, cool. One guy was accused of having a gun and he pleaded guilty just to avoid a longer sentence. Wow. Once they used a guy as a battering ram and kept ramming his head this into a, a wall. Is this a Tex Avery cartoon? Yeah, but a lot funnier. <laughs> they kept ramming his head into a wall until he told them what they wanted to hear. They would sometimes take a guy, drive him deep into another gang's territory make him take off his shirt so all, of t- all his tattoos yeah. were showing kick him out of the car and then announce on their loudspeaker that a rival gangster was here oh no one guy said they did this to him he got jumped and stabbed by 10 guys <laughs> one story was that Perez's mistress was also seeing another guy and when Perez found out he raided that guy's house and planted drugs on him and that guy got six years in prison wow some people were dropped out of windows <laughs> oh my god in 1995 there were three officer involved shootings in Rampart crash in 1996, just one year later, there were 12. <sighs> they would celebrate these sorts of things by going drinking at the shortstop at 1455 oh, Sunset Boulevard, I right was, near Greg's house. I was, I was just there a week ago. <laughs> yeah, and what were you doing before that? I was planning guns. What else? I was throwing people out of windows. <laughs> <laughs> Did they deserve it? That's for the Lord. That's for the Lord. <laughs> That's for Suge Knight to decide. <laughs> another place they would party is at one of the many crash pads, which is another one of their fun little puns. <laughs> but they high five every time I said it. Get it? <laughs> they had these throughout the city, which were just like ratty apartments where the officers would take their mistresses. They would drink, do drugs, party with hookers, drug yeah. dealers, and their informants. In essence, Rampart Crash really was another gang. Perez likened it to a fraternity. <laughs> oh, that's a gang. Yeah. And said that most of the stuff they were doing was a approved by their sergeant Edward Ortiz and they didn't think anything was wrong with it. He said, these guys don't play by the rules, we don't have to play by the rules. There was the concept of being in the loop, which meant you knew what was happening and you could be trusted not to say anything about it. Those who did not want to be in the loop uh, got dropped out of a window. (laughs) They got into it, the crash thing, they saw what was going on and they would transfer out, which is why there were so many transfers out of (laughs) Rampart crash. As for Perez himself, he says he never saw any sort of behavior before he joined Rampart Crash. Yeah. According to Perez, the worm turned in May of 1997 when he and Durden arrested a coke dealer and confiscated his drugs and his pager. A little later, the pager rang, so they called the guy and they set up a deal with the intent of arresting this guy when he showed up, and when the time came, they figured, let's just sell it and we'll keep the money. <laughs> I got an idea. Let's be criminals when this guy shows up. <laughs> These guys make a lot of money. <laughs> Imagine being there for that when the guy's talking to them and they just look at each other like, you know, this guy's got a hell of a pitch. <laughs> What's the harm? Who's getting harmed in this deal? <laughs> oh, children? They did this a couple more times, and they ended up making $10,000. Oh so how could you say, I would do God. that. <laughs> Perez says it was Durden's idea. Durden, of course, says it was Perez's idea. Regardless, this was when Perez claims to have gone bad. Some say he broke bad. Even though some suspect this sort of behavior started even further back in 1992. From this, he moved on to doing all the other things that we already talked about, and Perez 
didn't feel bad at all about it. He was okay with planting evidence and all that. He said, it felt good. I'm taking this guy off the street. One way or another, he's taking him off the street. Eventually, the power went to his head and said that his job became an intoxicant that I lusted after. Mm. Gang members and other people from the community spoke out against Perez as well. One girl said that Perez had once gotten her pregnant and made her get an abortion and then take the bus home from the clinic. (sighs) Of all the things that happened in the world, that's like the saddest thing. He was accused of showing photos of gangsters he didn't like to witnesses and making them positively identify them at crime scenes that they weren't a part of. He's also accused of assassinating a tax collector from the Mexican mafia in a McDonald's and his and Durden's name come up also being connected with the death of Notorious B.I.G. And Perez is suspected of being the getaway driver in the Bank of America robbery. One gang member said that in a dark alley, he'd rather meet Satan than Rafael Perez. (laughs) Some feel that he was trying to start a drug empire of his own by taking out any opposition and becoming king of Rampart. Perez's testimony implicated around 70 officers. There was enough evidence to bring 58 of these to trial. Of them, five were fired, eight resigned, and 12 were suspended. Those numbers are a little low. Yeah. In In 2008, there were still some officers that hadn't even come to trial yet. On March 3rd, 2000, all crash units were disbanded and replaced by special enforcement units. There was no investigation into whether or not any other crash units had been behaving similarly, which, how could they not be? (laughs) The LAPD made the LAPD Board of Inquiry into the Rampart Area Corruption Incident, a very catchy title, which made 108 specific recommendations to reform, but it was criticized for not addressing the bigger issues here that allowed for this sort of thing to happen. In response, USC law professor Erwin Chemerinsky released an independent analysis of the LAPD's Board of Inquiry report on the Rampart scandal, (laughs) another great title, which was more critical and called for fundamental overhauls of the way that the LAPD was run. The Department of Justice threatened to sue the LAPD. That's the the big deal. (laughs) If they didn't consent to federal supervision. So on September 19th, 2000, the LAPD was put under a consent decree by the federal government. So they had to report to the federal government. Over 1,000 cases were reopened and came under review for fear that they were falsified by Rampart Crash and over 100 cases were overturned and then came the lawsuits. (laughs) The settlement cases were being paid for by taxpayers' money and people feared that it was going to bankrupt the city. The city itself estimated it would have to pay about $125 million in damages. Perez got sentenced to five years in the LA County Jail and he would be able to then serve his parole outside of California for his own safety. At his sentencing, he warned all people planning to get involved in law enforcement to use me as an example of who you will avoid becoming and that whoever chases monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster himself. The problem with Perez's testimony is how can we trust the word of somebody who has admitted to having lied successfully in court for years? He took a polygraph five times in his admission and he failed every single question every single time. God. (laughs) And experts hired by both the prosecutors and the defendants reviewed the tests, the polygraph test, and determined that they were administered wrong. So uh, I don't know what that's about. There's no explanation. Like, then do it again. Do it differently. (laughs) Yeah. There's no follow 
follow-up. When Perez got his hands on all the case files, he put himself in control of the entire case because he was the one that was giving out the information. People felt that he was confessing just enough to make others look worse than he did and to protect all of his friends. There were jailhouse informants that were telling how Perez had always wanted to get revenge on the cops that he had old feuds with. This seems to have happened when Perez was asked about an officer named Brian Liddy. Uh Liddy and Perez had joined Rampart Crash the same day, but Liddy, by all accounts, seemed to have actually been an honest cop. He was also the cop that made the arrest that sparked the Rodney King riot. Oh, wow. Perez and Liddy did not like each other, but at first Perez said in his testimony that Liddy was okay. But as the weeks went on, he changed his story and accused Liddy of a lot of things that led to Liddy losing his badge and gun. They stripped him of that in the delivery room while his son was being born. Oh my God. And they gave it to his son. (laughs) Don't be like your father, kid. Officer baby reporting to duty. (laughs) The police chief at the time, Bernard Parks, Mm -hmm. believed everything Perez said, but most people outside of the police department were sure that he was not telling the full truth, nothing but the truth, help you God. God. The problem is that most of the people telling a different story than what Perez was saying are gangsters and admittedly crooked cops. So who can we believe in this? The whole thing exposed a shocking depth to the citywide corruption that was going on. But the real problem was the culture that was surrounding the LAPD and LA's justice system. Mm -hmm. So starting in the 50s and 60s, the LAPD became very militaristic, very manly. And Perez said that it was this aggressive culture that corrupted him. There was this total like us against them atmosphere about the LAPD. Mm -hmm. But people who have gone through this know that if you think of that job as war, you will have war. (laughs) So some of the officers may not have committed any crimes, but were complicit in all of this out of the code of silence where they wouldn't report wrong behavior of their fellow cops, which made all of this so much easier to get away with. As for the courts, the scandal exposed how years of laws and policies that had passed tipped the justice system in favor of protecting cops and against defendants being able to speak out. So things like the three strikes law made it more appealing for people to admit to things they didn't do rather than trying to fight it and risk even more severe punishment, which made it easier for a cop to lie and get away with it because instead of saying a cop is a liar and getting 10 years, they would just say, okay, I did it. And they just get five years. The judicial culture was hostile towards the defense and would believe almost anything that a cop would say. Gang members were always seen as inherently guilty. Defense attorneys who were against a crooked cop were heavily criticized or they were outright fired. And judges who didn't convict a lot were labeled as soft on crime and they risked not getting elected for more terms. So it's terrifying to think that like you could be, you could be completely trapped by just democracy. Like, it's all legal. There was bickering among all the sides in this. A detective named Russell Poole had been suspicious of this stuff for years, Mm -hmm. and he'd been trying to bring it to light, but his superiors, including Chief of Police Parks, kept him suppressed. Poole had a distinguished career. He had investigated the notorious B.I.G. murder, the murder of Bill Cosby's son. Mm -hmm. That's not the same murder, by the way. <laughs> Bill Cosby's son was not no- notorious PG. <laughs> he was also on the Liga Gaines case and was the evidence coordinator of the North Hollywood shootout. Oh, wow. He noticed that the incidents were not being properly investigated and found all these weird connections between all of these cops. He had written up a 40-page report on the guy who had gotten beaten until he vomited blood. Yeah. But when he turned it in, they confiscated it and oh. they shortened it to a two-page report. Oh, my God. Yeah. The LAPD was already in bad shape and they had a terrible image, Rodney King. And 
and they had this Operation Hammer, which they had launched, that had failed miserably and violated a ton of civil liberties. So they just didn't want more controversy. Poole eventually resigned because he couldn't be a part of such an organization. And then on September 26, 2000, he sued the LAPD for not allowing him to tell the truth. Regardless, Chief Parks still took the credit for exposing this scandal. The LAPD blamed the DA's office for allowing all this to happen, but the DA's office didn't have all the information because the LAPD wouldn't give it to him. Meanwhile, the media blamed both Chief Parks and Garcetti, while Parks shot back that it was the LA Times and the media that were overblowing this whole thing. they were not. (laughs) It was just a mess, and with so many conflicting stories and finger-pointing, Pointing, pointing, Point. and Perez saying nothing about Biggie's murder or the bank robbery and yeah. denying knowing either Gaines or Liga, even though Liga says that they work together yeah. in narcotics. You can't help but feel that the whole story was never told. And in the end, nobody was really punished that severely yeah. and nothing was resolved. So to complicate things even further, what Rampart Crash was doing was actually working. Gang activity went way down. In 1990, Rampart had 150 murders. In 1997, there were 33. Wow. Most people in the community supported what the cops were doing because it made their neighborhoods safer. Mm-hmm. And once Crash got disbanded, things got bad again. Wow. The cops that took over after all this, they didn't want to be seen as too aggressive, so they were soft on the gangs, and the gangs came back bolder than ever. In the couple of years after it was disbanded, violent crime went up 9%. Homicide went up 116%. So the question here becomes, at what cost do we want our streets to be kept safe? Yeah, All of this is the stuff that Christopher Nolan's dreams are made of. <laughs> Mac is now out of prison. I don't know what he's up to. Chief Parks is now a city councilman member mm-hmm. the disgraced sergeant ortiz officer liddy and another guy named harper sued the city in 2005 saying that they were used as scapegoats in this whole thing yep. and they won 15 million dollars oh, cool liga the one who said it wasn't a racial incident where for shooting gains got fired last year when asked about his confrontation with gains that he would have killed a whole truck of them oh them meaning black people great ovando the, the guy yeah, got paralyzed and won that big settlement got arrested four months after he won the settlement for selling drugs in Nevada. As for the federal consent decree that was meant to last for five years, it wasn't lifted until 2013 (laughs) because the judge who ordered it was not happy with how slow the reforms were going. As for Perez, he was released on parole. Perez on parole! I would watch that. Best Broadway show I've ever seen. (laughs) On July 24th, 2001, three years into his five-year sentence, only to go on trial yet again in 2002 for the Ovando thing where he got sentenced to two more years. Nowadays, he's going by the name Ray Lopez and just got three more years of probation for lying about his name on a driver's license application Mm. in June 2005. (sighs) And that's the Rampart scandal. Nothing learned, nothing settled. God, it's terrifying. Just committing crimes and getting away with it. And everyone's a liar. Yeah, Perez got five years for all of that. Yep. That's insane to me. And the heroes in that then got fired, got fired. for horrible yeah. things that are unrelated. <laughs> Greg, please tell me that things have gotten better for the LAPD. Certainly. How oh. could it get any worse? They've changed. The federal consent decree is lifted. Things are good now. <laughs> things right? are Things are good when you don't continually pick on one particular person who wants to go Rambo and everybody. <laughs> and that's the story that I've picked. First blood. In February 2013, a former LAPD officer shot two people in a parking lot. Later, when looking for the suspect, they found an 
11,000 word manifesto posted on Facebook. And so begins the Christopher Dorner story. Or does it? Christopher Dorner's story could really start anywhere and still end up in a burned cabin in Big Bear. <laughs> As could all of our stories. <laughs> his rampage was a long inevitability. If you want to start with his first murders, it was February 2013. If you want to start with the fuel on the flames, it's June 2009. Or it's the inciting incident that occurred in 2007. Or it's years and decades that have built up and all led to this because someone <laughs> who holds grudges will eventually be consumed by them. So for the sake of linearity, let's put a timeline down. Dorner was born in New York, but moved to Southern California when he was young and grew up in Norwalk and Orange County. Ugh. Save it for Orange County meekly. It's just us making black noises. <laughs> black. He mentions in his manifesto that he was for several years the only black kid in his classes. We've got his yearbook here. <laughs> Who would have thought there would be so many white people in Orange County? My first recollection of racism was in the first grade at Norwalk Christian Elementary School in Norwalk, California. This About, is not, this is him. This yeah. is in your story. No, no, no. This okay. is, I mean, we're so similar. He, throughout his manifesto, is able to recall just the, the smallest slights against him and names involved. <laughs> he broke my carrot. Jim Armstrong, if I can recall, called me an N-word on the playground. My response was swift and non-lethal, as he said. Oh my God. I know. I struck him him fast and hard with a kick and a punch. (laughs) He cried and reported to a teacher. The teacher reported to the principal. The principal swatted Jim for using a derogatory word toward me. Swatted? Swatted. Okay. He then, for some unknown reason, swatted me for striking Jim in response to him calling me an N-word. And he goes on to say, How dare you swat me for standing up for my rights for demanding that I be treated as an equal human being. That day, I made a life decision that I will not tolerate racial derogatory terms spoken to me. So that's Why his... does he keep using the term swatted? Because it was a good word and it's a copy and paste thing. <laughs> He does a lot of weird things in Manifesto. I'll get to, I'll read my favorite parts of it later. After this long passage about having to deal with this at his youth, goes on to, below is a list of locations where I resided from childhood to adulthood. Cerritos, Pico Rivera, La Palma, Thousand Oaks, City City, Utah. He wants the journalist to go and look up these places and and, and build his legend up. Yeah, he wants a plaque. He wants a plaque. A a plaque with a red two on it with a bunch of shell casings. He spent a semester as he got older, California Lutheran University in Thousand Oaks, white people, and moved on to Southern Utah university white people where he graduated in 2001 a year later a very white year is that reference to the um kubrick film or just the year there's no black people in 2001 space is black you don't know what the aliens look like that's true that's true the monolith was black what do you want a year later, 2002, he joined the Navy Reserve. He trained in river warfare units and eventually was rated as a rifle marksman and pistol expert. That'll come back. In 2002, Dorner and a classmate found a bag containing nearly $8,000 that belonged to the Enid Korean Church of Grace in Enid, Oklahoma. The two men turned into the police, and when they asked why they turned the money back, Dorner said, it's an integrity thing. The military stresses... And then he was swatted. <laughs> <laughs> the military stresses integrity. Another thing that comes back in the uh, in Manifesto Law, he stresses integrity. Dorner said his mother taught him honesty and integrity. He was commissioned in 2002, commanded a security unit at a naval air station in Fallon, Nevada, and served with a mobile inshore undersea warfare unit from June 2004 to February 2006. During this time, 2005, he joined the police academy. While he was in the academy, he had an altercation with two other officers who, as Dorner puts it, decided to voice their opinions about the black community oh specifically using the n-word to communicate this an old childhood problem it's yeah. not a childhood problem childhood, childhood problem. problem what's his what's his problem <laughs> well he must have trauma from his childhood if he if he doesn't like being demeaned and 
dehumanized. It's just him. It's not generations of people. <laughs> he names these two officers in his manifesto, Magnana and Berdios. And from his own words, after he asked them not to use the word, they, the accused replied, I'll say what I want. <laughs> uh, and a shoving match between the two ensued until several other officers separated them. Dorner wrote, what I should have done was put a Winchester Ranger SXT 9mm 147 grain bullet in his skull and Officer Magnana's skull. He filed a formal complaint against these two recruits. What ended up happening was internal affairs investigated this incident and only found one of seven officers who were around at this time had heard any racial remarks. The other six didn't hear anything, didn't see anything. Code so, of silence. Code of silence. So They're it, learning. They taught them well in the <laughs> police academy. So it was all their word against Dorners and Detective Ty, I assume, of internal affairs filed a 128 formal complaint which reports employee misconduct against Dorner in retaliation for his initiation for the complaint against the two officers. It's weird. He, he was shunned. Because of this, he, was, he crossed the blue line. You don't cross the blue line against other officers. Explain the blue line. The blue line is, how do I say this? Where the handicap spots end? Yeah, you don't park there. <laughs> blue line is the understood, you don't turn against other cops, mm-hmm. which we've already heard about. In, uh, we've seen what happens in Rampart. Two cops it, who it cross the blue line. Yeah, it didn't have a name, but now it has a the, name. The blue line. Yeah. Berdios and Magnana only got a 22-day suspension, paid of course. And all the ice cream they could eat. And at the time of Dorner's rampage, they were still LAPD officers. So Dorner graduates in 2006. He spent the first few months on the street as a trainee. But during this time, he was deployed in November of that year to Bahrain with the Coastal Ravine Group 2, which was the... You can be in the LAPD and the... The reserve, yeah. I didn't know that until I read this, but yeah, they they deployed him. He That's, returns and... That doesn't sound like a good idea at all. What if you need him at the LAPD? Isn't there enough cops, though? I mean, he's just a trainee. He's well, not what, like, if they were, what if all the cops were <laughs> like, we got a war, all the officers got to go fight, you gang members take over. Godzilla's attacking, we better bring in the Navy to control the gangs while us good cops fight Godzilla. <laughs> so Dorner returns to the police department in April of 2007 and quickly resumes his post with the LAPD. Because he had left when he was still a trainee, he was still on probation when he returned. Mm-hmm. He was assigned to a training officer named Teresa Evans. This is where we should start paying attention. Uh, what about, what about? But oh, okay. according to Evans, from the first day she began working with Dorner, she claimed that he had started complaining about racism in the department. She used the word preoccupied. He was hmm. preoccupied with it because of what happened before he left when he was in the academy. Does it, this might sound racist, but it's, it's relevant to me. What is her race? I don't know. Because if it's like a white person, like, oh, he's always going on about race. You can't always trust it's, that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I don't know. I didn't look it up. <laughs> what was her last name again? Evans, but her first oh, name is Oh, God, she's Teresa. white. Oh, God, she is so white. It's the whitest cocaine. <laughs> she's as white as Bisquick. <laughs> she- that's good stuff. <laughs> I was up for hours and I'm so fluffy. Donor asked her if she had seen any racist behavior or been treated badly. Maybe she wasn't white. Mm. She would later tell him to keep all discussions work-related. <laughs> to her, it might seem paranoid or she might know about his previous incident calling out two fellow officers. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. But she was it, citing against him and I think he sensed that. As we've learned, when trying to delve deep into yeah. cop activity it gets very murky it's funny reading all this Dorner stuff in his manifesto and the stuff you're like well I know there are corrupt cops and he had crossed the blue line and in his manifesto there are things that he brings up where it's behind like the curtain and you're like oh what if it's really like this and then you step back and you're like no he's a (laughs) crazy person yeah he's a murderer (laughs) no but what Perez was doing I mean like he just wanted to have some new leather furniture what's wrong with that 
He found his purpose in life. I thought yeah. that's what our goal in life was. In his manifesto, again, he goes on to bring up her reputation in the department as a bully herself, continually being flagged for excessive force and earning the nickname, which she proudly stood by, Chupacabra. I think in a goats manifesto... Goats were her victims? Yeah, she would arrest a lot of goats. She was a goat racist. He brought up uh, an bye incident... Bye-bye, black sheep. <laughs> he brought up an incident where she, like, tore a piece of skin, like, ripped some skin off some older woman while trying to arrest her and, like, Ew. was bragging about it. Tore a piece of... How old was she if her skin was coming off in pieces? It was, a. Uh, it might have been in the film Dead Alive. <laughs> she might have been part mummy. <laughs> 2007 incident between Evans and Dorner. They are called to a motel or a hotel in San Pedro. There's a it was home... A, it was a smotel? It possibly was a Holiday Inn. That's a lyric. Um, 2007, San Pedro, they're called to deal with, a, I think it's a homeless person who won't move from uh, like a bus stop. They're trying to get him up. And during this, they kind of get into like a shoving match. Dorner and the uh, the homeless person. He gets into a lot of shoving matches. I, I think he does. He's a kind of a, I mean, if you look at pictures, he looks like a big, scary football player. Yeah, so I imagine you can shove him. And it shoving affect, is his biggest weapon. It's his shoulders are for. And then he arrests the person. They kind of get into, they, like he tackles him down. They file the report. And then Dorner comes back later and says, well, I didn't, I wasn't completely honest. When they were arresting this person, Christopher Gettler, Officer Evans was kicking the person using excessive force and kicking him in the chest. And uh, he would later go on to say, oh, if you watch the video of Gettler, the recorded testimony, he admits to this, to which the Internal Affairs has to go and investigate on that. And they find later there's not enough evidence to uh, do anything to Evans. Convict. Now, at this time, Evans is saying that the only reason that Dorner is saying this is because she threatened him with an unsatisfactory report because he wasn't doing good up to that point. So now she thinks Dorner's trying to just back himself up, and if he gets rid of Evans, he doesn't have to worry about that. And it's kind of true. <laughs> so they end up looking into it. They don't find enough evidence that shows that Evans used excessive force on Gettler. So they file something against Dorner saying that he falsified a report after that. It must have been in crash. So that was in 2007. It took two years investigating it. In January 2009, the board found Dorner guilty of falsifying statements and making a false complaint. One of the guys on the board, pay attention to this, the board of rights, was Randall Kwan, who was a, LA, a former LAPD officer and now was the city attorney for the LA Police Protective League. So that's 2009. He's fired. He's terminated as a police officer and he, he tries to file an appeal to be put back on the force they deny him in february of 2013 i can't find out why this really bothers me it's really important though february 1st 2013 he was discharged from the navy can't figure out why they keep saying according to pentagon records <laughs> i don't know i don't know how to look that at yeah you oh. didn't interview the pentagon for this i kept calling them they gave me one side i had to get all five sides for them to give me the record you gotta call the northeast side two days later after he gets discharged from the navy which he says in his manifesto was one of the worst things that have ever happened to him if not the worst thing that has ever happened to him it ruined his life two days later super bowl sunday 2013 i believe it's february 3rd at a luxury condo complex in irvine a couple is ambushed in their parked car they are shot and killed the female is monica kwan employed as a basketball coach. The male in the car is Keith Lawrence, a public safety officer at USC. Monica Kwan is the daughter of Randall Kwan, who was hmm. on the board of rights. Hmm. 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 Huh. February 6th. Who did it? It was three days between them being shot and them identifying Christopher Dorner as the lead suspect. I, I remember when this happened and and these people were shot, there was like so many different reports of like who these people were. It was like, yeah. oh, he shot two old ladies. <laughs> no, they were cops. Yeah. No, it's this. Yeah, yeah, it was really confusing at yeah. the time. I read those reports when they were still trying to figure it out. And uh, there was this rumbling of like, well, there's this thing online that we should be looking at. <laughs> and they, they kind of had calls it a manifesto. <laughs> yeah, they, they couldn't really figure out why two people were shot. And then it becomes really clear on February 6th. Oh, 
I don't know. See, that's the thing. I don't know if he posted the manifesto and then went and shot two people because he didn't mention that in his thing. He mentions yeah. what he's warming up to do. Or did he shoot these two people and was so like, I got a big idea. <laughs> the muse. <laughs> I have one important question. Yeah. Who won the Super Bowl? The Bears. Uh, it's also funny that this, like, right when the consent decree is listed, like, you guys are good to go. You've all reformed. So let's go over the manifesto, shall we? I printed it out. 13 pages. And it's uh, with a post on Facebook. Am I tagged in it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What if he tagged, like, all of the officers and the people in it? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? We fired you. Oh, no. Oh, this? no. In it, he says the consent decree should have never been lifted. The only thing that has evolved from the consent decree is those officers and Involved in Rampart scandal and Rodney King incidents have since promoted to supervisor, commanders, and command staff and executive positions. Yeah, that doesn't sound like he likes it. Yeah, no. So the whole thing about this manifesto is his name and his legacy because they've ruined his name. He has a mark on his name now. He was fired from the LAPD. He was discharged honorably from the Navy, and he has all these records of the his doings, pretty much as a tattletale. <laughs> and he doesn't like that. So a lot of times he brings up his name on the very first page of it. The question is, what do you do to clear your name? Name semicolon a word or set of words by which a person, animal, place, or thing is known, addressed, or referred to. That's in his manifesto. Mm. Name synonyms. Reputation. Title. Denomination. Repute. A name is more than just a noun, verb, or adjectives. It's your life, your legacy, your journey, sacrifices, and everything you worked hard for every day of your life. Don't let anybody tarnish it when you know you've lived up to your own set of ethics and personal ethos. So that's pretty much the theme of all of this. That's how it starts it. Uh, (laughs) It's right up front. (laughs) Coming off strong and insane. Some repeat lines. It was an necessary evil he keeps saying it's in my dna it's always show that he keeps talking to journalists and doctors journalists look into this look into this look into here's this police officer look into this doctor study my dna he actually does say study my brain for a severe depression after i was let go of the lapd and he like gives ex- times when he had his uh, brain x-rayed look at those things and let me know if, let, let everyone know if i had severe depression because i got fired okay like this was a, the, a big crime against him the the ego on this guy is <laughs> immense hey it's in his dna <laughs> He says really funny things in here. He brings up movies a lot. Uh, Training day? Not training day. Uh, One of the first ones. That's the only movie I know. Yeah, one of the people that testified against him was uh, Sergeant Hernandez. This was for the um, kicking Christopher Gettler thing. Apparently testified that he showed up on the scene and the suspect was cuffed and he told Dorner to fix his tie. And Dorner goes on to say, Gettler's injuries were photographed clearly showing me wearing a Class B uniform on that day. A Class B uniform is a short sleeve uniform blouse. A short sleeve <laughs> uniform blouse from LAPD does not have a tie included. This is not Super Trooper's uniform, you jackass. <laughs> Something he said. I thought he meant fix the homeless guy's tie. Um, no. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. This is all just a misunderstanding. Journalists, look into it. Look into this, please. Yeah, he says stuff like, time is up. This is my last resort. A lot of manifesto talk. A lot of Rambo talk. Yeah. He's saying that that cost him his naval career was all this stuff that happened in LAPD. So I guess it's something along those lines. He says stuff like, your day has come. The reason this is all happening is because he's a whistleblower, which might be true. It's bordering on, did this happen because he crossed the blue line? He's a whistleblower. Or is this happening because he's paranoid and he's trying to nitpick and manipulate situations and he's just so egotistical that he can't see that it's hard to tell he like will say something and it's kind of profound no one is saying you can't be prejudiced or bigoted we are all human and we hold prejudices if you state that you don't have prejudice you're lying but when you act on it and victimize innocent citizens and fellow innocent officers then that is a concern like he's he'll like make sense like that. this guy's starting to make a lot of sense i do not fear death as i died long ago on january 2nd 2009 that's when he was fired talking about chief beck why didn't you charge me with filing a false police report when i came forward stating that evans kicked 
Mr. Christopher Gettler, you file criminal charges against every other officer who is accused and terminated for filing a false police report. You didn't because you knew I was innocent and a criminal court would find me innocent and expose your department for suppressing the truth and retaliation. That's why. <laughs> oh, he also says you awoke a sleeping giant. I am here to change and make policy. The culture of LAPD versus the community and the honest good officers needs to and will change. I am here to correct and collaborate your moral compasses to true north. This is where he brings up really scary stuff. <laughs> Ghosts. Ghosts. Creaking doors. He Bats. talks about different like black officers against black citizens, white officers against black citizens and white citizens, Hispanics attacking Hispanics, lesbian officers, degrading male officers. He says this, which I circled. Citizens, non-combatants do not render medical aid to downed officers, enemy combatants. They would not do the same for you. <sighs> they will let you bleed out just so they could brag to other officers that they had a 187 caper the other day and can't wait to accrue the overtime and future court subpoenas. As they always say, that's the paramedic's job, not mine. Let the balance of loss of life take place. Sometimes a reset needs to occur. Oh, God. It is endless the amount of times per week officers arrest an individual, label him a suspect arrestee defendant, and then begin arraignment or trial, realize that he's innocent based on evidence. You know what they say when they realize an innocent man just had his life turned upside down? I guess he should have stayed at home that day when we <laughs> discovered him walking down the street matching the suspect's description. Oh, well, he appeared to be a dirtbag anyways. Meanwhile, the falsely accused has left to pick up his life, get a new family, friends, and a sense of self-worth. Don't honor these fallen officers slash dirtbags. When your family members die, they just see as an extra overtime and a crime scene and a perimeter. Why would you value their lives when they clearly don't value yours or your family lives? I've heard many officers who state that they see dead victims as ATVs, wave runner, RVs, and new clothes for their kids. Why should you shed a tear for them when they return a crack, a smile for your loss because of the impending extra money they will receive for the next paycheck for sitting at your loved one's crime scene for six hours because the overtime will accrue? It's scary because who knows that? Yeah, that might, he be might be telling true. the yeah. truth there. He'll say stuff and I kind of like, I don't I don't see you as an ATV. You're so sweet. I don't have an ATV. But I, you do look a little bit like a pinball machine <laughs> to me. But then he will go on and then like he'll sort of say stuff and you're like kind of leaning like, oh, maybe like this is what really happens. And then he gets... <laughs> crazy. He blames this officer whose name I can't pronounce with hacking into his credit union account. <laughs> And they like, well, you let her keep her job. There's a detective that shows evidence that the IP address attempted to hack into my account and change my username and password. And it leads directly to her residence. <laughs> the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. This Boy. quote is not directed toward the U.S. government, which I fully support 100%. <laughs> this is toward the LAPD who cannot monitor itself. The consent decree should have never been lifted ever. Wait, now he likes the consent decree again. He's he's back and forth. This is he's. Are you gonna listen to this guy? Greg, suddenly I don't know if he's such a nice guy. He threatens a lot of people straight up. He says Bratton, Beck, Hayes, Tingaredes, Eisenberg, Martella, Kwan, uh, Evans, Sergeant Hernandez, Villanueva, Gallegos, and Anderson. Your lack of ethics and conspiring to wrong a just individual are over. Very grand. You are aware that I have always been the top shot, highest score, an excellent... Oh, no. An, an expert, excuse me, in rifle qualifications in every unit I've been in. I will utilize every bit of small arms, training, demolition, ordinance and survival training i've been giving rambo mm. the violence of action will I'll be, be in this high. cave you have misjudged a sleeping giant whatever pre-planned responses you have established for a scenario like me shelf it whatever <laughs> contingency plan you have shelf it whatever territory <laughs> plan you've created, shelf it <laughs> i am a walking exigent circumstance with no off or reset button look at the big picture of the situation they lapd 
Create a situation. I will harm no outside agency unless it is a deadly force idle situation. Except for the two people he shot he in the car off, who were civilians. Totally. Yeah, neg- right. Not even like, I'll start with a few. Yeah. What I said I was going to do. He went straight against his manifesto. And if a man can't be held to his manifesto, who is he? That's the thing that totally negates all this passionate 11,000 word thing is this like, I'm going to shoot people who are unarmed first. <laughs> and then it gets just strange. He starts talking about gun regulation because he was able to get assault rifles and all this stuff very easily without showing an ID in certain places. And then after he talks on a long time about banning guns, again, because it was so easy to get them. Mia Farrow said it best. Gun control is no longer debatable. It is a conversation. It's a moral mandate. Then he talks to Senator Feinstein. His greatest hero. (laughs) Mia Farrow said it best. I'm not Rosemary. He then goes on to talk about the presidents and talk to the president. Oh, no. He says that President... It's pronounced Obama. He, oh God, who did I vote for? He thinks that Obama's doing a great job. He loved Bush too, which was really weird. Well, he has a Star Wars reference. He does seem to flip flop. Ooh, let's hear the Star Wars reference. Oh, he's talking about Han uh, shot first. I'm Han. You're always Han. And everyone's Greedo. Talking about Obama, I believe. Electoral candidates, children, Romney at the time, state that they want to punch the president in the face during debates with no formal repercussions. No one even questioned the fact that the son just made a criminal threat towards the president. You call his wife a Wookiee. <laughs> Off the record, I love your new bangs, Miss Obama. Mrs. Obama. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Who called who a Wookiee? I guess someone on Romney's side called his wife a Wookiee. So, so a son of Romney called Michelle Obama a Wookiee. I didn't look into that. I just took it at face value and I circled Star Wars reference. I love the seconds right after that when he's getting all heated up. Off the record, I love your new bangs, Mrs. Obama. <laughs> it's like a Wookiee. He brings up a lot of old stuff. Assistant principals who had accused him of certain things. He remembers names and dates. He then goes on to... As crazy people do. As crazy people do because they sit around and harbor resentment. <laughs> he names all these friends that have been really sweet to him over the years and how he wishes he could... Shoot them. Shoot them in the face. A lot of people in the force he wishes he could have more years with. To shoot them. And then he goes on to talk about... It's sad that I won't be around to view and enjoy The Hangover 3. <laughs> he talks directly to Todd Phillips he, when he does this. He really missed out. This is the real tragedy here. Oh, my God. A guy didn't get to see The Hangover 3? Oh, my God. He talks to... Even the Medal of Honor. <laughs> he talks to the vice president. He talks to Hillary Clinton. You're going to do a bang-up job when you become president. Speaking of bangs, if you see, <laughs> tell Michelle Obama. He thinks uh, Governor Chris Christie's going to do a good job. He's really all over. The, like he's, yeah. com- he's complimenting people on opposite sides. He names people he's proud of. One of them, Chris Matthews. No, thank you. Who's uh, Chris Matthews? Chris Matthews is the big hot, white hothead on... Uh, I forget. Oh. One of those yelling talk shows. Oh, yell talk. Yell talk. The Honorable George H.W. Bush. They never gave you enough credit for your successful presidency. No, they didn't <laughs> because it wasn't. Alan DeGeneres, he brings up. Continue your excellent contribution to entertaining America and bringing the human factor to entertainment. What? He uh, thinks that Westboro Baptist Church can all slowly burn in hell. <laughs> he's really like, he's, this is weird. This is really he weird. He tells Christoph Waltz what a great actor he is. <laughs> He names the most beautiful women on the planet. You want to hear a couple? Yeah. Kate Winslet, Gina Carano, Gianna Michaels, Nora Jones, Margaret Cho. Margaret uh, Cho? Uh, Queen Latifah, uh, Michelle Rodriguez. What? Notice how the only one I'm outraged about is Margaret Cho. <laughs> <laughs> His next little blurb, Dave Brubeck's Take 5 is the greatest piece of music ever. Period. I mean, there's not much we can really argue him on. Anthony Bourdain, you're a modern restaurant man who epitomizes the saying, too cool for school. <laughs> Again. Uh, he Did lo- I write this? He loves Larry David, uh, oh. Kevin Hart. 
uh, uh, Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle. Uh, Larry David, I agree. 72 to 82 degrees is way too hot in a residence. 68 <laughs> perfect degrees. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> this is like, why did this come up naturally or like? No, I mean, he just started talking about people he missed and then like was probably thinking about <laughs> everything he was going to miss and then started thinking about the world in general. <laughs> the two things I'm going to miss most, the Hangover series and watching Ellen DeGeneres show. Um, and that beautiful Margaret show. He cited right with Trayvon Zimmerman thing. He thinks Zimmerman's a scumbag and a thug much long before he was arrested for the 16th time. <laughs> he thinks that Anonymous is great. He also thinks that Charlie Sheen is effing awesome. He this says, is really putting a date on it now. Yeah. LGBT community and supporters, the same way you have the right to voice your opinion on acceptance of gay marriage, Chick-fil-A has the right to voice their beliefs as well. <laughs> That's what makes America so great, freedom of expression. And then there's a smear of chicken grease on it. On, on everyone's Facebook <laughs> post, there's a smear of chicken grease. The last person he wants to give a shout out to before, I guess his oh, words got... I hope it's me. I hope it's me. His words got cut off. Uh, Mr. Bill Cosby, <laughs> you are a reasonable and talented man who has spoken the truth of the cultural anomalies within the black communities. And you mix great drinks. He congratulates him for his voice in the black community, which the, the, some people don't agree with. And one of the last words that cuts out, we cannot address this nation. <laughs> we cannot address this nation's intolerant issues until we address our own community's morality issues first. Accountability, Mr. Cosby. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, he really, he really came down on the right side of history. <laughs> That's the manifesto uh, shortcut. It was a fun read if you like to read the suicide note of a crazy person. So this manifesto was found on February 6th. That's insane. Yeah. He killed Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence. After this, after writing his passionate memo, memo, a manifesto <laughs> about... Note to self. He's going to strike the LAPD and be this one-man army. Mm -hmm. He then tries to flee to Mexico. <laughs> Follow me, Sorry. boys. At that point... We're going to Tijuana. <laughs> South of the border. <laughs> you guys ever had fish tacos? <laughs> At that point, the owner headed towards San Diego and supposedly tried to steal a boat from an 81-year-old man and try to flee to Mexico. He threatened him with a gun and tied him, tied this old-timer up. But while Doran was trying to start How the boat... How skin did he rip off? Just a little bit. <laughs> just the nose. He was hanging off. But while Doran was trying to start the boat, a rope got tangled in the propeller and the boat was no longer Mexico-bound. <laughs> he took the owner's cell phone and fled the scene and the boat owner was left unharmed, which was cool of Doran to do mm. since he's known for killing people who are unarmed. About 2 a.m., a citizen reported finding property belonging to Doran on a street near a Lindbergh field, not far from where he tried to steal the boat, which included a briefcase which had Dorner's LAPD badge on it. <laughs> he won't be needing that. <laughs> <laughs> so then he's trying to go to... It's February 7th. It's 5 a.m. Do you know where your kids are? Yeah, Chasing Dorner. Torrance. Five in the morning. Oh, no. One of the people that Dorner... I had, have loved ones there. One of the people that Dorner had promised to attack had uh, police security on the perimeter watching just in case anything happened. It's five in the morning, and a uh, van slowly comes down. It's from what police have said. It matches the description of oh, Dorner's. God. And it's coming up the street, and it keeps stopping and starting, going real slow, and it's really real suspicious. As the van gets closer, at least seven officers open fire on this van. <laughs> fired between 20 to 30 rounds and it turned out to be a woman and her daughter delivering newspapers oh, down the street. One of them was shot and injured and the other one almost blinded from the windshield glass shattering. Paranoia. Great. Yeah, great. Sh shoot first. And that's basically their, the criticism of the police department was like hey, great job. It didn't even look like his <laughs> Wait, car. they didn't even notice like newspapers flying out of the window? I guess not. It was dark. The color, it, like the truck was a Nissan 
Titan, not a Toyota Tacoma. The color wasn't gray, but aqua blue. As it got closer, like, oh, this is totally not his car. It was acting suspicious. Yeah. Oh, and neighbors God. were just furious that this had happened because their paper didn't get to him. <laughs> and then another incident happened, again with Torrance Police. Not that great. <laughs> they spotted a truck similar to Dorner's at Flagelane and Barrel Street was fired upon again. I think he was shot in, like, the shoulder. I mean, they are playing into his manifesto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we were saying, the paranoia he created was so intense because you didn't know where he was. So anything that looks similar to him, you knew that he was a, a rogue cop, a Had really good some marksman. some sort of a van. Yeah, <laughs> and some sort of a car. He spotted then in Riverside County on February 7th, the next day after he was announced as the killer. Two LAPD officers in Corona, which is in Riverside County, were on a protection detail when a civilian approached the cops and told them that they had saw a truck that looked like the description of Dorner's truck. I'm going to cut in here because I remember when this whole man, like no one knew. Yeah. I remember everyone yeah, was scared. Remember? No one knew where he was. Yeah. And the thing I was going to tell you before is that at the um, the Lowe's, the Lowe's right over here oh, in Northridge, really? supposedly Dorner was sighted there really? and like they shut down the whole store and they like made everybody line up and oh. they went through like are you Dorner? Are you Dorner? <laughs> he wasn't there, but someone yeah. thought they saw him there. I remember being in Chico at the time that this was happening down here. <laughs> He's and, coming. And I remember you had gone to Big Bear recently, and I remember yeah. thinking, remember we thought that like he was following you? Yeah. <laughs> of course we thought that. <laughs> you saw his manifesto, Greg. He likes Christoph Waltz. I like Christoph Waltz. Oh, God. <laughs> Be honest. Are you Dorner? I'm Dorner. I'm Dorner. There was so much speculation because there was, it, it was like city-wide. Yeah, and no the, one knew. A civilian spots a truck that looks like Dorner's and these two cops in Riverside County take a look. The police followed the truck and it sped up as they were pursuing it, so hmm. they continued to pursue it. That's That happens all the time in Riverside. <laughs> it's just meth. Leave me alone. I'm not Dorner. I didn't kill anyone except them. <laughs> Welcome to Riverside. It's a necessary evil. <laughs> and my name is Necessary Evil. As they approached, they realized that it was Dorner. And then at the point, mm. Dorner fired on these officers and they fired back. One of these officers suffered a grace of the head. Dorner, because he was a marksman, demobilized that card and continued on. If he was a marksman, grazed to the head? Come on. He's driving at that time. Give That's him that. True. About an hour and a half later, an officer, Officer Crane, and a younger officer trainee, Zacchaeus, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, were stopped at a red light when Dorner drove up to them and oh, opened no. fire at a parked red light. This happens a lot tonight. Total ambush. He killed Crane and seriously hurt Zacchaeus. So he was just... They just parked at a red light and he just... Where, wait, were they... So this was still in Riverside? Yeah. Were yeah. these guys... LAPD or were they like Riverside? I don't know if those two were or not. I know that so the, just any cop he's going to kill. Yeah, basically. And he's right. going to ambush them. It's not going to be like a an internal assault like he promised. He's just going <laughs> to uh, Oh, you promised an internal on, assault. This is a cowardly ambush. <laughs> I wanted a specialized assault. This is a rampage. So after this point, <laughs> he had killed these two officers, seriously hurt somebody else. He's calling this mayhem. Couldn't really find him. Uh, stopped at Lowe's. Stopped at Lowe's, of course. So all this is going on. And then in San Bernardino County, investigators find Dorner's truck burnt and abandoned on a forest road near Big Bear Lake. There's footprints leading into the mountains, but they oh, think God. that this could be a diversion. So they have Big Bear sort of on lockdown. It's easy to lock down Big Bear because it's like a two-lane road and it's only two ways to get up to Big Bear. Unless you're on foot. Unless you're was. on foot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they thought that he could have gone to San Diego. They still, they weren't sure if he was up or down the mountain still. They saw his car, but again, they thought that this guy was Rambo. Like he could have. How would he get to San Diego from he, Big Bear on foot? <laughs> you can go down to like Redlands and then catch the 15 and go down to San Diego. Let's go there right now. Okay, I'll show Let's you that. Here, right. pause it again. Oh boy, San Diego is nice this time of year. I didn't expect to see so many dolphins on the shore, but man, they're beautiful. I think there's something of an infestation. Can you believe we joined the Navy? Can you believe that we took out ISIS? <laughs> 
Anyway, you'll hear about it in the papers. <laughs> Go on. Where were we? On the 10th, two days later, a million dollar reward was set wow. for him, which was pretty big. But again, these... <laughs> What's that in 2015 dollars? It's like six bucks. <laughs> the dollar really took a hit. They didn't really know where he was. They thought he could be in Big Bear. Maybe not. But he was there, hiding in a vacant cabin for six days. And on the seventh day, an older couple came by with their... <laughs> he vac- rested. He rested, of course. An older couple came by their vacation condo to clean up for their next visitors. Dorner jumped down at them and tried to calm them down, holding a gun, of course, in typical Dorner fashion. They recognized him from we the news. We were calm. <laughs> they recognized him from the news, and the woman tried to run away, but Dorner caught up to her, mm-hmm. and he bound them both with plastic ties and extension cords and left them in their Which bedroom. you may have gotten at Lowe's. <laughs> Ooh, are these Lowe's brand? <laughs> you sure are, miss. They sure are. He told them that he didn't want to hurt them. He had been watching them as they worked outside, and they could tell that they were good people. So he let them live, but he left them there, all tied up with pillowcases over the head. Uh, he stole their SUV and started heading okay, down at that at Lowe's what if this was all just like an elaborate Lowe's commercial <laughs> now selling pillowcases <laughs> the moral of all this he stole their SUV and started heading down the mountain the woman was able to free her hands though and called 911 uh, state fish and wildlife officers then spotted this stolen SUV and began pursuit he crashed the SUV and managed to hijack a car and bolted down the road he was heard telling the person he hijacked the car I hope the cops kill me or something to that effect strange thing uh, to tell your I, victim I know I hope the cops kill me give me her <laughs> still being chased he began to shoot at the police and then he managed to ditch the second car he stole and ran into a cabin. The cops followed him there and of course there was a standoff because that's how most Rambo stories go. <laughs> uh, during the shootout though he shot and killed the deputy sheriff, uh, another one he wounded. When all this gunfire ended it was unclear whether he was still alive or not or just playing possums yeah, and like learn, remember, yeah, luring them in. But the officers braved forward and began tearing the cabin down wall by wall with an armored vehicle. And then they started sending tear gas into the cabin which they believe started the fire. As this was going on a single gunshot was heard. Sheriff officials believe Dorner had had done himself in as the cabin was aflame. All they found of him was his charred remains, which, of course, at the time sounded really suspicious. But, of course, they could have shot him and burned the cabin down to do away with any evidence. I just don't know who to trust. Evidence of what? Uh, them beating him up. Oh. And killing him. Well, I mean, he was trying to kill them. Yeah. There was something suspicious about that. I don't know. Like, I remember hearing about, oh, he burned in a cabin. Yeah. He might have shot himself. There's nothing left of his body. And remember thinking, like, is this a, another Dorner game? Is this the cops? Like, maybe they have him somewhere and this is someone else's body? They, yeah, because they weren't, they didn't find his body right away or something. Yeah. And they weren't like, is he really dead? Yeah. And then his hand popped out of it. <laughs> <laughs> around this time, though, around like near the end of his spree, he had like a lot of followers, which was really weird. Remember, like, all these people were like, oh, a rogue cop, yeah. And because of the years of LAPD corruption, they saw this psychotic rogue behavior as heroic, or should I say, anti heroic. <laughs> Not me, though. For a <laughs> manifesto promising the death of so many corrupt cops as he saw it yeah he started by killing two innocent people one of which was related to a guy who got him fired and then tried to flee to international waters which is pretty cowardly and then he hid in a cabin a- any like sort of guy. ballad of christopher Dorner that people want to set it it's it's bs mind my language please bull shoots bamboo shoots it's bull honky and we both know it bh <gasps> chief beck of the lapd ordered an investigation of Dorner's dismissal and went forward to examine all the allegations he claimed in his manifesto Many people were angry at Beck, thinking that he was giving into this maniac's wishes, but he said that he did it just to show the LAPD's transparency, that they were credible, and he sought to show every allegation will be investigated. But I didn't really find any information on these eternal affair <laughs> investigations, so... Yeah, we'll look into it. <laughs> We're putting our best man on the case, Rafael Perez. Ray Lopez. Ray Lopez, <laughs> as it is now. As soon as he gets out of jail. Yeah, that's Christopher Norton's story. That's, uh... Anticlimactic. 
Not really. Yeah, that's a, that's what I was like when I was doing all the stuff for mine. All yeah. I kept thinking was, "This is anticlimactic." Yeah, this doesn't I, I end have no well. resolution. Yeah. I don't know how this ends. Yeah. Well, it's a scary world, and we're being policed by who knows who. <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles, <laughs> where the police might plant a gun on you. Run or confess. You got two choices. <laughs> Open up. It's the police. We're not crooked. <laughs> We're nice. <laughs> We're the nice ones. <laughs> These stories, is it's just like a, a snow globe just shaken up. I don't know where the snow ends mm-hmm. and where the little snowman begins. It's con- it's a confusing world. I think that we should... Infiltrate the LAPD? Sure. I was going to say be private detectives. Just no. like a Marlowe or a, a Continental Op. We could be Marlowe working with Spade. <gasps> oh my God. West Coast meets West Coast. <laughs> Dorner's story doesn't really show a lot of overt police corruption there aren't like cops i mean as as far as his manifesto goes they look out for each other they'll lie they'll do what they need to do to stay out of trouble but there's no giant ring of uh like no there's no drug ring there's not there's nothing that corrupt but they're just bad cops and that's been our episode and that's been our episode i don't know what to take from his manifesto as true and what's not true that ellen degeneres is the voice of the people that is definitely a objective truth An undeniable <laughs> law of the universe. No, but really, like, I, I, the Rampart scandal was this big city run, this sort of empire that was building up as this yeah. street gang. At the same time with that, it's kind of like, yeah, I figured. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't anything like, it, it was certainly weird and, like, disturbing, but yeah. it's not like, it's not something that hasn't been considered. The most disturbing thing was that it's it was it was confirmed. Like, it was confirmed. Yeah. Like, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is. Yeah, yeah, here it is. Exactly. Yeah. All your suspicions Or is true. it true? Oh, no. Oh, my God. I yelled at so many cops. And the Dora thing, I mean, like, I, I was much more interested before I started reading, and now that I know, I don't care anymore. <laughs> you got it out of your system. I got it out of my system. Because I, I thought that he was going to uncover all this stuff. I wasn't really sure. Like, I knew that he wrote this thing, but I never read it before. And I was kind of interested to see where it went. And it's bullhonky. It goes nowhere. Yeah, it, it goes, goes nowhere. It just drifts into a bunch of Star Wars references. <laughs> hey, you have the right to remain active on social media? Find us on Facebook. <laughs> like us on there. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr. Allymeekly.tumblr.com. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Please do. Say hi to us on the street if you see us. We appreciate mm-hmm. that. We love our fans, if, every if single one of them. Yeah, if you yourself are writing a manifesto, mention us. It, it would be good for our public image. Tag us. Tag us in your next Facebook manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> the Alley Conservancy is having a lot of movies in downtown in June. Psycho is one of them. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is another mm-hmm. one. I'm trying to remember what theaters are involved i know the million dollar theaters involved i think the regent so go watch some movies in downtown check out these old theaters if you get a chance go to the united artist theater it it was our favorite when we went yeah that's incredible yeah it looks like dracula's castle before you do that all uh when you go there leave an ipod playing our episodes oh yeah yeah, just so everyone can hear it yeah we really appreciate any plugs that we can get we're not going to reimburse you for the ipods if you want to send us an email la.meekly at gmail.com it's a jingle that just won't get out of your head any last words it's in my DNA. And that's been (laughs) another episode of LA Meekly. Drafting our manifesto since 2013. All right. That's Greg deflating. He's inflatable. He's the handsome guy. Uh, He's inflatable in every hole. (laughs) 